Hey everybody, it's um, the With a Bullet podcast. I'm Matt, I'm here with Todd, and we're about to talk about a UK chart from 1972. Um, Todd, you made this choice, so tell us why we're doing this one. Because the greatest two songs ever recorded are next to each other on the chart, and I don't want to give away (laughs) what those songs are. So... I noticed this. I don't know when I found this. I found this like a couple of years ago. I was just perusing through the British charts and uh, noticed that my favorite song of all time was on it. And another song that I don't want to give away any hints was right next to it. That's another favorite song for a different reason. So um, that's why you guys, whoever's listening, will just have to be surprised by my awesome uh, day in history. I obviously I never heard this chart because it was in England and I was like not even a year old yet. But um, but I was there in spirit. Somehow my chakra went over to the UK and 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 you know took it all in. Let's see. And the one song that isn't your favorite song. There's a couple of songs on my side of the list that might give some clues to what type of song it is anyway because some of the other songs on my list um have been used in the same purpose for um um what that song is i guess okay you mean like your number 40 song i no not this one okay it'd be cool if it did. that that would that would be weird that would be weird we're gonna <laughs> sing it at a at a football stadium anyway to get things started number 40 for you matt is everything i own by bread and i actually genuinely like this song i kind of like make it with you by bread too so um i won't say that it's a guilty pleasure because i don't believe in that concept because i mean you shouldn't feel guilty about what you like but i guess i like a couple bread songs i don't but i don't agree with you on that i think guilty pleasure is fine because you know deep down in your heart it's not a quality so i have all kinds of guilty pleasures that i know aren't very good songs but there's a part of it i like even though i know it might be schlocky or something like that yeah but what i what i'm saying is if you do like it you should just like it oh yeah i'm I'm with you on that i'm just saying though that you know there's songs you like that are um that are not considered quality or or you know are dopey going in like we both like the movie uh beyond the valley of the dolls i don't think anybody's going to claim that's going to win any oscars um right yeah most of the time it's actively terrible but you can enjoy it on different merits that some of which were intended and some of which weren't. And that's kind of the way I've, I've always viewed guilty pleasure, but I agree with you. I like everything I own. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I used to think the lyric said, um, give up my life, my hearth, my home. And I was like, yeah, really? But it doesn't, it's <laughs> actually heart. So. Yeah. But Let's see, Bread, I mean, they're essentially the early 70s Toto um, in that all their members were session musicians. And you might think that this song is about a guy wanting to get back with his ex, but it's not. It's about David Gates' father who passed away 
about a decade before this. So he was just um, writing about how much he missed his dad. And um, two covers of this song actually reached the top of the charts in the UK. Um, Ken Booth in 1974 did a reggae version of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, Boy George in 1987 did a version that was kind of based off of Ken Booth's version. Um, neither of which are as good as the Brad version, but uh, both of those went to the top of the charts and it's been covered by a ten ton of other people. So it's kind of a standard. Um, wasn't as big of a hit. This version wasn't as big of a hit in the UK as it was in the US. It was top five of the US, only made it to 32 here, but decent song. So I always thought it was about a bar bet, like like in the tradition of a card sheet or, okay. or the video for All I Need is a Miracle. I, okay. I always assumed that like he was literally betting everything he owned. I'm just, <laughs> I, 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 I've never thought that until right this minute. So, okay. But let's move on to 39 here, which is Deborah and One Inch Rock by um, Tyrannosaurus Rex, which is actually T Rex. Yep, I'm skipping this though because I get T-Rex later in the countdown. Okay. So this is a skip for me, so let's move on for you to number 38, uh famous one, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face by Roberta Flack. And this was the number one single on the US charts this week in 1972. So um but obviously a little bit lower here in um the UK. Um, it was written by the folk singer Ewan McCall in 1957. Um, he wrote it about Pete Seeger's sister, um, who he was trying to get with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they did eventually marry. Um, it was already a standard before Flack covered it, but her version is by far the best known. Um, it was originally recorded and released as a single in 1969 off of her first take album, but didn't really take up, take off on the charts until it was featured in the movie Play Misty for Me, which was um, Clint Eastwood's directorial debut. It's basically about him getting stalked by Jessica Walter. And it's played over a ridiculously long scene where... Clint Eastwood and his girlfriend in the movie Donna Mills screw each other in the middle of the woods. What? Yes. Have you ever seen that movie? Yes, I've seen it. Okay, okay. We will not talk about sex in this podcast, Matt. Okay, okay. (laughs) Close to you is editing. You should have said they were were, um, making whoopee. They they were they were making love in the middle of the forest. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> but it, it's slower than most of the versions of the song. Um, actually, Flack thought about recording a faster version, but um, obviously this took off, so um, kind of became like the template for most cover versions that came after this. And um, it was actually played as a wake-up song for the crew of the Apollo 11 
on their last day on the moon, which was the last day that um, any um, Apollo mission was on the moon. So the last song heard on the moon. So I'll bet all the moon has like all the moon creatures were confused. They they were they were or yeah. a lab in Nevada. <laughs> yeah, or a sound stage in that California. Yes. Don't tell anybody I, I know about that. <laughs> I've always right. imagined, like, what if this was used in other Clint Eastwood movies? Like, what if they threw this into Dirty Harry or um, The Beguiled or um, Kelly's Heroes or something like that? They should just, they should use this song in every single Clint Eastwood movie ever. Well, what what if they did like a scene for scene recreation and like any which way but loose? And I'm like, you know, they could have done uh, make, making love with the orangutan. Well, the, in, in the movie, the orangutan goes and and makes Whoopi um, to Charlie Rich's <laughs> behind closed doors, which is pretty funny. But it would have been even funnier if they would have done it to the first time ever I saw your face, because then of course they would have been calling back, um, play Misty for me. So. Right, yeah. Way to go, Clint. You missed an opportunity on that one. <laughs> right. But let's let's move on to 37 here. Um, Tom Jones with Young New Mexican Puppeteer. Well, the lyrics to this are ridiculous. Basically, it's a story song, and it's about a... I don't know if it's based on a true story or not. Whatever I could dig up on it wasn't really clear, but it's about a puppeteer from Albuquerque who created a puppet show to try to influence social change. So Tom Jones is like um, singing about how he created an Abe Lincoln uh, puppet for civil rights and a Martin Luther King puppet, or as he puts it, Martin Luther, who was a King uh, for people. Okay. Mark Twain for what, those are the only specific puppets he mentions, which sounds like, like the worst fucking puppet show of all time. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's pretty typical corny, you know, late 60s, early 70s kind of sentimentality about, you know, peace on earth and that kind of thing. Um, uh-huh. However, the music of it is kind of interesting. So it trades because it takes place in New Mexico. It trades in a lot of Southwestern tropes like you have the Marty Robbins style horns. For some reason, there's a calliope in it. I don't know why. Maybe because of the puppets. Uh, Probably because of the puppets. I don't know. What what do puppets have to do with a calliope? That's like a circus yeah. thing, isn't it? You can have puppets at a circus. Fine. I'm fine. I, I don't... I, <laughs> I, you know what? I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen puppets at a circus. They should have puppets of animals at circuses. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but it actually sounds a little bit funky because of the way they recorded the, per- the percussion and there's acoustic guitar on it. So it sounds like a really weird version of Donovan's uh, Ricky Ticky Tabby, which hmm. like slowed down. I mean, not quite. It's in that ballpark. But of course, Tom Jones sounds nothing at all like Donovan. So it's really bizarre. I don't, I don't know. It was never a hit here. Um, just a very strange of its time type of song. I don't know. I guess you had to be there. So they should have used it. Yeah. Breaking Bad. Maybe they still can on uh, Better Call Saul or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, they might. Yeah. But, you know, maybe Saul will meet a puppeteer who 
Cars Abe Lincoln or something like Maybe that. Maybe he should use all three of those puppets in one of his TV ads. Like, he, he might. Like Abe Lincoln fighting for your rights, MLK, and I don't know how you fit Mark Twain into that, but so it'd be <laughs> kind of cool. But moving on, another weird one. Uh, number 36 is Mary Had a Little Lamb by Wings. And this is a skip. It's Paul McCartney doing a nursery nursery rhyme. So was this the first <laughs> ever song released by Wings? It was on their first album. Yeah, and this is where I, McCartney I didn't look. This, I didn't look to see if it was their first single, I, it, but it, it might have been. It's good that you skipped it because the songs like this are where McCartney. I love Paul McCartney, but this is where he earned his scorn that he gets from from fans who think he was lightweight i mean how, how can you defend a song like that right yeah exactly but number 35 for you is don't let them touch you by the angel X. this is a weird ass song but it's interesting and it's kind of unfortunate in a way so i've never heard a pop song that starts with a cello like it has this real low-key cello beginning to it like it's a like it's a uh, recital or something like that and then it kicks into kind of an updated girl group song with like early 70s Brit pop tropes in it. And the song is about, it it is kind of like an updated version of the early 60s girl groups. Um, And the lyrics are, you know, don't let them touch you is, you know, basically, you know, kind of the old trope of don't let a guy go too far type of thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the song itself is, it's interesting uh, never, I probably never saw the light of day over here in America, but the more interesting part of it is the Angelettes themselves. They were a teenage girl group from Manchester. And when this song started to climb the charts, they were invited to appear on Top of the Pops, which back, if you're not familiar with Top of the Pops in England, that was star making type shit. You know, if you were on that show on the BBC each week, it was basically a show where they trotted out all the top songs, um, during the week. And um, so they were invited to do top of the pops, but for some reason between the time that they were invited to the top of the pops and when they, um, and when they appeared, the BBC banned the song because they thought, I don't know why, but they thought the lyrics were suggestive, which they're not really at all. They're just talking about, don't let them touch you, you know? And so so they actually did appear on top of the pops. And of course, especially in the early seventies, there was usually a chart bump that came with appearing on that show. And, you know, they're at 35 in the chart right now. And uh, they had climbed five spots this week. It was only their third week in the chart. So they go on top of the pops. And then all of a sudden about a third of the way through their performance, and I could not find it online, but I read a lot about it. The, uh, the sound went out through this, that part of the song. And to this day, the angelettes have no idea whether the sound went out due to a glitch or because the BBC interfered with their performance. Um, But the point being is that, you know, it screwed up their appearance. They never reappeared again. And they never got that top of the pops, top, top of the pops bounce, Uh, which is too bad because it's, um, it's an interesting song. I'm not saying it's some great, you know, lost gem or anything like that, but it's interesting. I heard a follow-up that they did called uh, I Surrender, which was decent. And apparently they're still around. So uh, hmm. kind of a 
brush with stardom that ultimately kind of uh, went pear-shaped, as they say over in England. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, kind of unfortunate because, uh, you know, I have no idea why the BB- BBC was just ban-happy, I think, in those days. They banned all kinds of shit. There's another song I have yet that was banned by the BBC. So, um, hmm. so that was uh, kind of the story of the Angelettes. Yeah. Moving on for you, number 34... 50s revival time chantilly lace by jerry lee lewis yeah this is a skip to um he's covering the big bopper and he's phoning it in that's pretty much what you needed um, yeah a lot of those 50 revivals were phoned in no doubt pretty much i mean this seems more this one seemed more phoned in than the rest of them though yeah i mean i'm, I'm assuming jerry was drunk when he did it <laughs> but <laughs> okay but it's um, 33 for you, uh, Michael Jackson with Rockin' Robin. Well, I'm skipping this, not because it's a bad song, although it's definitely not my favorite Michael Jackson song, but I don't know that I. it's a cover. I don't know that there's anything interesting I can add to it. Michael Jackson was in his early portion of being at the top of his peak, and it's pretty much all there is to it. It was a big hit here, too. So, yeah, pretty much all I got. Okay. Moving on as we're rolling through our skips. Number 32 is Beautiful Sunday by Daniel Boone. This song's straight up bubblegum. Let's see. Boone had record. His real name was Peter Green. Um, He went through a couple stage names before he settled on Daniel Boone as his stage name. Um, Obviously, he isn't the Frontiersman. I thought he was. I thought they reanimated his corpse. To it, it would have been funny if he sung this song. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, this was his second hit on the UK charts. Um, his first was the original version of "Daddy Don't You Walk So Fast," which ended up becoming a huge hit in the US for um, Wayne Newton. And um, pretty decent song. Um, actually, huge international hit went number one in five countries, 15 in the U.S., actually. And it's the biggest selling um, hit by a Western artist in Japan. Hmm. And and if you've ever looked at the list of um, the biggest selling um, hits by Western artists from Japan, it is just weird. Uh, like Sky High by Jigsaw is on it. Well, as it should be. That's a great song. Yeah. Song. But um, it's considered a theme. This is foreshadowing here. It's considered a theme song for the Scottish football team, Dundee United. And um, I'm almost 100% sure that it was used in an ad for um, the NFL network at one point, just because it mentions Sunday. So, yeah. But could have been. Um, NFL but, yeah, is pretty I mean, obvious about that shit, so that sounds right. Pretty much, but very early seventies feel, and obviously, like I mentioned before, bubble gum, bubble so. gum, British bubble gum. Yep. Um, kind of a little bit different than our bubble gum, but not so different that it can't be recognized as bubble gum. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. Exactly. But 
number 31 for you is not bubblegum. It's um, Neil Diamond <laughs> with Song Song Blue. It's not that far off, though. Song <laughs> Song Blue. Ba, 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 ba. Okay, so we've talked about Neil Diamond before about how, you know, his batting average was about 250. But when he did hit, um, you know, he had a good slugging percentage, I guess, to use continue the baseball metaphor. But um, this would be one of his this would be one of his misses, but I listened to it again. I hadn't heard this song in ages. Uh, when I was a kid, when Neil Diamond was still basically a frontline artist, you used to hear a lot of his songs on the radio still. And I can recall hearing this a lot when I was a kid. And even back then I was like, what the hell is this shit? You know, it was just cheesy. So I went back and listened to it and it wasn't quite as bad as I remembered it being, but it's, but still it has, the song is ruined because it has extremely schmaltzy strings in it and champagne background singers like straight out of Lawrence Welk's show or something like that. If he had stripped those two things out, it actually wouldn't be that bad of a song uh, with only Neil <clears throat> and his guitar and, and the drums. But but he did include those things. So, you know, it basically made that song a much more cheese ball than it probably should have been by rights. The The lyrics are just... You know, there's no bridge to the song at all. He's just singing about, um, you know, about the joy of singing, basically, you know, and um, or, or the, the emotions you feel when you hear a song. And um, but then he had to go fuck it up with the production value of it. It's kind of like a lot of Elvis songs from the 70s were like that, too, where he just they, they just could not fight off the schmaltz factor. And Schmaltz oh, yeah. did sell, yeah. you know, for a lot of artists back then, but it sounds awful, you know, looking back on it. So this is one of those songs that um, that fits into that category, I think. Yep. Yep. But I believe that also leads me to my long distance dedication this week, does it not? It does. Yes. I'm going to roll with now the British chart only goes down to top 50. So I don't know what Matt did, but I did stay within the framework of this chart. I'm going to roll with number 45, which is Jungle Fever by the Chikachas, which okay, um, probably probably most famous for people our age um, for, for appearing in Boogie Nights. And I don't even remember what, what scene in Boogie Nights does that appear in. I don't even remember. Oh, God, it's it's in the very beginning. I, I think it, it's is when, it when he's, he's like going... walking into the club. OK, yeah, I was thinking it had to be near the beginning of that movie. Um so I wasn't, I've always liked this song. I wasn't sure if I was going to roll with it for my dedication or not until I read about the Chikachas on Wikipedia. And it said, uh, the, the first line of their entry says a Belgian based group of Latin soul musicians. And I definitely had to look into that. <laughs> and this wasn't, there's a lot of groups that recorded American style music in Europe that were actually like U S military personnel who, um, you know, were stationed overseas and they, they may have decided to stick around or or whatever. This isn't the case. These are actually all the members of this group were European, most of them Belgian, I think. Uh, most of them had Belgian surnames or Walloon or Flemish or whatever. Um, but they their career, they were basically an instrumental band and they started way back in the 50s. Um, but Jungle Fever was their only kind of international hit. And if you've ever heard it, it's basically a funk instrumental, um, you know, a guitar based funk instrumental with during the 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 breaks, you know, a female is in there, uh, you know, moaning basically as if to simulate whoopee. 
And um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's pretty, but you know, it's, it's cheesy and it's, but it's also halfway decent instrumental, but this was also banned by the BBC for the moaning and stuff like that. It did go top 10 over here um, where its influence is also felt is probably in sampling where um, it was sampled by public enemies, cold lamp and with flavor and uh, probably most notably for people my age put her in the buck by two live crew (laughs) which it's pretty much that whole song they just basically rap over the guitar um uh hook and i tried to find you know chikachas are you know bands like this who are one hit wonders basically it's really hard to find their other shit uh even on youtube which youtube is pretty much a gold mine for finding obscure music and I couldn't even find the album that this appeared on. Um, but I did find the album after it. And it was actually pretty cool. I mean, those guys did some pretty legit Latin funk, you know. And uh, huh. so I'm going to dedicate this to all those Belgian Latin bands out there. All one of them, the Chikachas. <laughs> so, right. This song is, you know, it probably gets played more now than it did other than the time it was released. I mean, you, you do hear this on 70 stations quite a bit now, and I'm sure Boogie Nights helped yeah. that cause, but um, you know, just one of those out of, it was easier for instrumentals in the 70s to be hits, too. I think that helped, and it was one of those out of the blue instrumentals that, you know, hooked on, and it's it's and it's good. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, so... I'm down with Belgian Latin rock. Who knew? So <laughs> anyway, moving on, um, a, a cover song, of, but probably more famous for being recorded by this artist. Number 30 is Without You by Nielsen. Right. Yeah. And this was a Badfinger cover. Um, their version wasn't released as a single. But um, according to the documentary, Who is Harry Nelson and Why is Everybody Talking About Him? Um, the chorus popped into Harry's head while he was out partying, and Harry partied a lot back in those days. <laughs> yeah, much more. <laughs> it's, but he, the chorus popped into his head, and he couldn't remember who sang it. And eventually, he figured out it was Badfinger. Um, the two actually like ran in the same circles. Um, Harry was friends with all the Beatles. Badfinger recorded for Apple, so kind of makes sense but when he listened to the song again um, he wasn't really impressed with the lyrics and the verses Um, he especially hated the line i guess that's just the way the story goes but he kind of went along with it and reworked it and gave it like the big ballad treatment um, which kind of ended up being the definitive version of this song Um, the one that like every single cover that came after this was based on including um Mariah Carey's version which ended up becoming a big hit in the 90s um and um his version went number one both sides of the Atlantic and um honestly um I kind of prefer the Badfinger version I I don't know what you think about this I kind of prefer the Nielsen version I the Badfinger version is pretty good but I think it probably a lot of it has to do with the fact that I heard the Nielsen version so many times before I ever heard the Badfinger one. And, you know, I always liked this song. I, I never knew it was called Without You until 
a while. I always thought it was called "I Can't Live." <laughs> oh, there, there's a, there's actually, you. there's, there's a pretty funny video on YouTube of an addition from Bulgarian Idol. Bulgarian, and, um, nice. <laughs> and the singer comes on, and the judges ask her. Okay, so what song are you gonna do? And she's like, "Well, I'm gonna sing a Mariah Carey song. It's called Ken Lee." And they're like, "Ken Lee," and she's like, sings a little bit. And the judge is like, "Don't you mean without you?" And she's like, "No, Ken Lee." And then she's like, "Okay, go on." And <laughs> she starts singing, and um, she doesn't know like what any. I mean, obviously she's Bulgarian, so she doesn't understand what any of the words mean so it's just like can we and then just like a bunch of gibberish. how did you even find that did you find that in the course of researching this song no I, I i saw it probably about 10 years ago somewhere and it, it's it's pretty funny so it sounds like it i'm you're also betraying your hatred of bulgarians by what you just said <laughs> Which, long deep-seated that's i don't want to get into it on the podcast <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but um, anyway, let's move on to 29 here, which is Mungo Jerry with Open Up. Well, until I did this, I'd never heard anything at all by Mungo Jerry and other than In the Summertime, which is considered a one-hit wonder in the U.S., because it was. Um, and if you know that song, it's basically a jug band revival song. It's cool. I, li- I like, you know, it's a, it's a good song. So I had no idea what to expect when this popped up on my part of the chart um what i didn't expect to hear was driving psychedelic glamish rock which is what this song is um yep there was um there were two versions of this song i think um the one there was a slower version and a fast version i think the slower one was the single and it was kind of cool it was more of a slow blues uh the guitars are a little bit you know obviously slower um but all I know is that the washboard and the jug are nowhere to be found. And um, I don't know why Mungo Jerry dissed the jug band revival. <laughs> right. So, but de- definitely not. You know, I wasn't expecting to hear, uh, you know, basically sort of Steppenwolfish style rock. So, yeah, I was, I was surprised by this, too. I I never imagined that they would have a song like Yeah, this. Mungo Jerry were a lot. They had a little bit more staying power in England than they did here. So uh, they had several hits over there. But um, so they were obviously a little bit more diverse than we thought because we're dumb Americans. So. Right. Yep. Yep. We we slept on Mongo Jerry. We really did. You know. So <laughs> anyway, number 28 is Back Off Boogaloo by Ringo Starr. And the the title for this was inspired by Mark Bolin. Um, Ringo was hanging out with Mark Bolin a lot at the time. They. Um, we're doing the T-Rex movie Born to Boogie together at the time, which is terrible movie. Um, it's basically just Ringo, Elton John, and Mark Bolin hanging out and making in-jokes with each other. And occasionally you get a T-Rex performance. Um, not worth seeking out, but um, Mark had a thing where he would just constantly say the word boogaloo. Just like all the time, you just like say boogaloo. Yeah, that's, so that sounds right. <laughs> so, so 
it inspired Ringo to write this song, which sounds a lot like T-Rex. Um, could easily be like an outtake off of like Slider yeah. or Tanks or something like that. Sounds like And that. it sounded enough like T-Rex that at the time people speculated that Bullen actually ghost wrote the track, which he didn't. Um, actually, George helped him out with it. So, but um, it was also rumored that the song might have been about McCartney. Um, apparently, the two of them weren't getting along. I mean, none of them were getting along with McCartney. Um, but George wrote Wawa. John wrote How Do You Sleep. Maybe Ringo wanted to take a shot. But um, probably Ringo's best solo song, I think. And there is a video for this, and it would looks like it was just shot in Ringo's backyard. Probably. Was. And um, Frankenstein's chasing him around his yard. And eventually Frankenstein catches up to him, and Frankenstein and Ringo become friends. So... Um, well, that's yeah. good. So something good came. Yeah, you, when you say it sounds like T Rex, it never occurred to me, but you're right, it does. But it also, I have to say, kind of sounds like bad T Rex. Just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I don't know if, but, it, but I, I kind of prefer. Uh, it don't come easy is probably my favorite Ringo solo song. I, I'm not. not a, yeah, that's a decent one. I, I'm not a huge fan of Ringo solo. I mean, because he kind of delved into a little bit too much cheese so definitely, this one's all definitely. right so yep let's see but let's move on to 27 here which is donny albert with little piece of leather northern soul baby that's what this is okay um donny albert was american um and he probably had about it he, he his he had an equal amount of hits in america as he did in the uk his hits probably rose a little higher in the chart. I think he had two top tens in the UK. Um, this song wasn't a hit in the US at all, um, but it is pretty much ground zero for the Northern Soul sound, which if you're not familiar with it, uh, Northern Soul was kind of a sensation in England in the 70s and 80s, a kind of a club phenomenon. Um, and it was heavily, heavily influenced by kind of mid-60s Holland Dozier, Holland style Motown, like the up-tempo Motown songs of that period. So think um, Can't Help Myself by the Four Tops, um, that type of stuff, the, the you know, the, 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 the fast stuff. Um, so Donnie Elbert recorded, Donnie Elbert has a fal falsetto voice, so that kind of makes him stick out. But the difference in this song that I think made it probably the coolest find that we, that, you know, I found on this chart anyway, is that right in the middle of it, it's kind of a Motown, kind of an early 70s updated Motown song. You, the other big Northern Soul artists were like the foundations or, or music inspired by that. Some of the stuff we had in our 1970 countdown a couple weeks ago, um, that was big and it was remained big in England for much longer than it did here. Um, the difference in this song, though, is that right in the middle of it, um, and it fits perfectly, but it's really kind of incongruent with most songs like this it has a really cool guitar solo in the middle of it um so think of a motown song with like a fuzz guitar solo uh smacked right in the middle but it it doesn't sound out of place it fits the, the way they mixed it it sounds perfect with the song so 
this podcast is totally worth doing if it meant me discovering this song because it's brilliant. It's a great song. It's it's not available on yeah um, any of the streaming services I subscribe to anyway, so it's pretty obscure. But um, really, really cool stuff, and um, definitely would have got people jumping in the Northern Soul clubs in England back in the day. So, yep. But um, moving on for you, Matt. Number twenty six is "What's Your Name" by Chicory Tip. This is bubblegum glam. Nice. And it, it has lots and lots of early Moog synths on it. And it was written by Giorgio Moroder and Paul Ballot. And this was the second hit that the pair wrote for Chicory Tip. Um, the first was Son of My Father, which actually topped the UK charts earlier in 1972. Um, Chicory Tip essentially... Um, broke Marauder outside of continental Europe. But um, this is a really great song. I really liked this song. And prob- probably my favorite song on my side of the list. And um, there's a video of them playing this on uh, German TV. There wasn't a Top of the Pops performance, but um, the crowd is stomping along so loud that it drowns out the backing track. So you just like hear faintly hear the song and then you just hear in the background, just like over the entire length of the song, which is kind of cool. But um, um, Chicory Tip about a year after this um, had a really unfortunate makeover. Um, They kind of went full on glam. (laughs) Um, A couple of the guys started dressing up like superheroes. Um, one of the guys, the keyboardist had like a helmet and like blue face paint. And one of the guys has a, cr- a mask that's in the shape of a crab. Nice. And I, I have no idea why they went for that. I mean, they were already established. They already had a number one hit. Why do that? But why not? Um, but Chicory Tip did. <laughs> so... Well, cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Or whatever, whatever they were on. So, right. But moving on to twenty-five for you is Johnny Nash with "Stirred Up." Well, if you've never heard the Whalers version that appeared on "Catch a Fire" right around the same time as this would have come out, this would be a pretty amazing song. I mean, that version is is better because it's more. 70s and more drawn out but this is still pretty good and 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 the whalers actually originally recorded this song back in the 60s back when you know reggae was more kind of ska rock steady type stuff and this song is in that vein more so than kind of 70s version of reggae um it wasn't i i don't think it was a it, it was not a hit on the order of in the u.s on the order of his next single which was i can see clearly now which is one of the you know, most iconic songs of the, of the seventies, but um, Nash has an interesting story. I mean, he was, he was American, but he traveled to Jamaica quite a bit because he had a family connection down there in the sixties. And he sort of was the first American to quote unquote, discover, you know, ska, reggae, rock steady. And he kind of vowed to make it um, a big sound in America. And it took a while. Um, and he actually signed the Whalers to their first U S record deal and funded some of their early albums um, before 
uh, Island records took over uh, when, um, when catch a fire was recorded, but he definitely played a big role in breaking Jamaican music in America. I mean, his, his version of reggae was more 60s style reggae, but um, you know, along with Desmond Decker and the Israelites, which came out, I think in 1969, um, these songs kind of were the, you know, kind of, um, sampling so people could get used to the more deeper sound that Bob Marley was doing and, uh, Toots and the Maytals and all that. So, uh, pretty good song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on for you, number 24 is Sweet Talking Guy by the Chiffons. This is a skip. It's basically just a re-release of the original recording from the early 60s. Um, there's actually three cases of that happening on my side of the chart. So You got all um, the 50s, early 60s revival songs. I, I did. I did. So, But yeah, this is skip. So um, 23 for you is Slaying the Family Stone with Running Away. Well, this is off of There's a Riot going on, which was a huge departure for Sly and the Family Stone from what they had recorded up until that point, which was kind of feel good, optimistic, 70s hippie funk, basically, for lack of a better way to put it. But this song is probably the closest on There's a Riot going on. They got to old school Sly, um, though it's no, it's not even on the same block. Much, it's not even in the same neighborhood, much less the same block as like everyday people. I mean, it is up-tempo. It's sung by Sister Rose. Um, and it's been, the song, you know, the lyrics about, you know, running away is, you know, that's what it is. You're running away from your problems, basically, is what the lyrics seem to indicate. And a lot of people think it was autobi- autobiographical in the sense that Sly, who by then was pretty heavily into drugs, and it took forever for There's a Riot going on to even come out. It took like two years to record it. Um there's some who think it was it was like a moment of clarity for him, and he sort of understood he was being the architect of his own demise to some degree. But even though this is up, it's up tempo by the standards of "There's a Riot Going On," which is an extremely murky funk album. It's really cool. You got to be into that sound though to really kind of you know get that these days. Um, it's deep funk, but um it's pretty amazing that that's what resonated with people though in this period of time because there were three hits off of there's a riot going on the famous one is family affair uh, which is a pretty good representation of what that album sounds like through most of its length um but really it's probably my i don't know if it's my favorite song from there's a riot going on but it's it's the catchiest one from it for sure and um yeah good stuff and uh, but it still mystifies me that that level of murk was what people you know connected with people at that point but it's you know it's considered one of the best albums of all time and you know you have to appreciate it sort of in the way you'd appreciate like a really good you know like famous work of cinema or something like that it's not for everybody and it's not something you throw like at a party (laughs) you know i actually i used to love to do chores to there's a riot going on i have no idea why like when I was single and I had my own apartment, if I was like washing my dishes or vacuuming or something, I'd put there's a riot going on on. I've, I have no idea why, but that's, it was like. I'd be pretty good for that. I, I don't know why it is though. It's like, huh, these drug fueled funk treatments are really helping me, you know, wash my dishes today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, but anyway, it's a really cool song and there's a riot going on if you're, 
ready to go into some serious advanced funk. It's it's uh, good stuff. So, um, yeah, moving on, and I'm going to attempt to pronounce pronounce this because I've never heard of this song. <laughs> Somehow it's uh, Doobie Do and Doobie Doobie Do and Doobie by Diana Ross. Yeah, you got pretty close to it. It's Doobie 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 Doobie. Basically, yep. So, I have no rhythm. Uh, but the the reason you have, haven't heard this is because it wasn't released as a single in the U.S. Um, I'm not really sure why it wasn't, because it's actually a pretty good song. Um, the chorus is scattered. I mean, obviously, that's how you get the title. I, I'm not sure if that was meant as a placeholder for other lyrics or um, it was just intended for the beginning, but that's what it is. And has a similar to feel to um, some of Stevie Wonder's singles from late 60s, early 70s, like Heaven Help Us All or like For Once in My Life, kind of that type of stuff. And it was written by Deke Richards, who was a member of the Jackson 5 Corporation. And he also previously worked with Ross because he um, co-wrote Love Child. So, but... Pretty good song. Um, made it to number 12 in the UK. Um, didn't go anywhere here because it wasn't released, but pretty good. It's because Barry Gordy was being a dictator or something. Could be. Could be. Um, the other, the single that was released um, in the US was Call Me, or Aretha Franklin cover, which we had on one of our other charts. I think the 70 chart. Yeah, I think so. So, Right. But I also think that our next one was on one of our charts and we might have skipped it on that <laughs> one. But um, 21 is Judy Collins with Amazing Grace. Guess what? It's getting skipped again because I am not. <laughs> OK. Yeah, first of okay. all, I have Amazing Grace again later. And secondly, <laughs> I know this is going to be dross. So why belabor it? OK. But OK. Number 20 for you is California Man by The Move. This was the last single released by The Move before they changed their name to Electric Light Orchestra. Um, the last Move album and the first ELO album were recorded at the same time. Um, originally, they were intending to release the whole thing as the first ELO album, um, but they still owe their record company one more album as The Move. So they released everything without strings as the last move album and everything with strings became the first ELO album and they released a couple months apart too. So um, the lineup of the band, the move never was really stable. It initially started out as like a super group of bands around Birmingham, England. And um I mean, it was kind of a loose confederation, so guys left all the time. The only constants were um, the drummer Bev Bevan and um, Roy Wood, who was kind of a multi-instrumentalist and singer. Um, Jeff Lynn joined on, the, on their third album. Um, he replaced their original lead singer and one of their original gu guitarists. Um, by this point, they didn't have a bass player. Um, I think Roy would just play the bass, but 
Um, the song's a tribute to 50s rock. Um, this was kind of a big starting point for 50s revival. Um, Jeff's, Jeff Lynn's imitating Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy Woods imitating Little Richard. Um, it's, I mean, basically just straight up 50s rock. And um, the DJs in the States actually preferred the B-side to this, which was Do Ya. And it ended up becoming the only move single that made it onto the U.S. Hot 100 and ended up becoming a bigger hit when ELO covered it uh, about four years later, um, ended up making it to number 24 then. And um, the song was covered by Cheap Trick, um, released as a single. There was, didn't chart, but um, one thing that I've always thought is that this song would have been perfect for the Traveling Wilburys. Um, except for Jeff Lynn wouldn't have sung on that version. In my mind, Roy Orbison could have sung the Jeff Lynn part and Bob Dylan could have sung the Roy Wood part. Um, Dylan was in a Little Richard cover band when he was in high school, so he'd probably be a natural for that. I I, I think it was a lost opportunity for them. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I can't help thinking <laughs> but... like, when Jeff Lynn got... Uh invited to be in the move that it was like the the uh, chickens letting the fox into the hen house because ultimately it, it basically sort of became his band and it was Roy Wood's band for most of the period of the move so right and Roy Wood actually left after the first ELO album and started Wizard which kind of went deeper into 50s nostalgia right kind of like a, a mix between 50s nostalgia and full-on glam but um but decent band still yeah so i believe that also leads us into your uh long distance dedication it does um number 42 we have the kinks with supersonic rocket ship and this is what i like to call this the kinks garbage era um it started in 72 and it ran roughly to when they broke up in the early 90s uh before 72 they were one of the best bands ever and after that they had maybe 20 good songs spread out over 14 albums um the only other case that i can think of in pop culture that had a similar like golden age followed by a drop off the cliff in quality and then just churning out crap forever as the simpsons um Ray Davies kind of acknowledged this himself because his autobiography very abruptly ends in 1973. <laughs> but, um, but this was one of the 20 good songs. It's um, pretty similar to Ape Man. Um, it's kind of done in a Calypso style and he's wishing that he was getting away from the problems of the world. And in Ape Man, he's kind of heading off into the jungle himself, but here he has a rocket ship and he's bringing everyone along with him and um, nobody has to be hip on his rocket ship. Um, nobody's going to be in second class and there won't be any racism. Um, strangely utopian for Ray Davies, but it made it up to 16 on the British charts and it was their last hit for a while in the UK. Um, the next one would be Come Dancing. 
in 83. But in US, the US, the drought had already started, but um, ended up going from Lola to rock and roll fantasy. So only an eight year drought there instead of an 11 year drought. Right. But um, it ended up being used in the Avengers Endgame. And I haven't seen that movie, but I'm just assuming that they're like spoofing Wes Anderson for some reason, because Wes Anderson uses the kinks a lot and like has used kinks songs from this era. So maybe they were like spoofing him for some reason, like the Hulk was doing something Wes Anderson-ish or something. <clears throat> but maybe they have a doll of, uh, of the Hulk. Like... Like be. an animated, like uh, stop action version, stop stop motion Hulk. <laughs> yeah, it could be, could be, could be. But um, but yeah, it's a decent song, but one of the very few from the Kinks from the seventies, eighties, or nineties. And um, I'm going to dedicate this to the Seattle Supersonics because. Um, they're supersonic like the rocket ship and yeah cool. <laughs> ray davies i think part of the problem with the kinks is his old man yelling at cloud gene was really highly developed at a very young age oh yeah i mean a definitely, lot of kinks songs are pining for you know like our times suck you know and a lot of them are good don't get me wrong but you know he he kind of overdid it with that theme i think sometimes yeah, yeah, sometimes he did. Yeah, definitely. So. Number 19, we have um, the Woody Blues with Isn't Life Strange. This song is horseshit. Horseshit alert. <laughs> um, Woody Blues were pretty big by this time, or, or kind of in a revival period. Um, this would have been around the time the question would have been out, and um, this song came off the same album as I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. Both of those up-tempo rock songs that aren't, aren't bad. Um, this though is moody blues and prog rock prog rock mode in the worst sense of the term i mean um there's this song is based on an, a classical composition i'm not familiar with it's uh pachelbel's canon in d and my rule of thumb is is that when you start to base songs off of classical compositions and it's almost exclusively prog rock bands that did this it almost always turns to shit and this song is no exception i mean it's got all the tropes the strings the ponderous tempo to the song um overwrought singing and then what makes it even worse and cheesy is the early verses in each each early verse there's a reverb put on the back of uh of the of the vocals and it's just it's really bad um this song is why punk rock was invented because it was a rebellion against very pretentious songs like this so um and i don't mind some prog rock but this is prog rock in the worst sense of the term right yeah yeah it's pretty bad it's bad don't listen to it stay away <laughs> steer clear okay. um, next up for you matt is number 18 is take a look around by the temptations and this this sounds a lot different from other temptation singles from this time period it, it almost sounds like early philly soul um very airy sounding um but it was written by um norman whitfield and barrett strong who were kind of like the the main songwriters for the temptations in this time period 
And um, it's similar to the one that, to the song that I did in the last um, episode, Masterpiece, in that it um, deals with the problems in the inner city and um, they're kind of calling out people to do something about it. And um, they especially single out drug dealing in the song. But um, do they mention the word pushers? They do. Yes. yes. It can't be an early 70s, late 60s song unless drug song, unless you talk about pushers. Right. But this was the first this was from the first um, Temptations album that came out after um, the departures of original members, Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams. And the replacements, Damon Harris and Richard Street are pretty prominently featured in this track. Um, Damon Harris was Kendrick's replacement, and I thought he was Kendrick's. Because, yeah, they sound exactly alike, yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just the high falsetto voice, basically. But pretty pretty decent. It was actually a bigger hit in the UK than the US. Um, made it to 13 here, only 30 in the US, but... Um, the Temptations still had more hits in them. So I wonder when the term pusher went out of style. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that should I don't know. Uh, like, what if I went up to a cop right now and I, and I said, hey, man, I saw somebody riding a bike around the neighborhood. I think they're a pusher. <laughs> they probably <laughs> laugh at me. No. Instead of drug. Pusher is a better word than drug dealer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. God damn the pusher man. <laughs> right but number 17 for you is jojo gun with run 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 this is a skip for me uh, it was my last skip actually um jojo gun were the successor sort of successor group to spirit uh jay thunder island ferguson formed this group but this is pretty bland early 70s paint by numbers rock it's not terrible but it's forgettable so i'm skipping uh okay that leads us to number 16 sister jane by new world and this is this is more bubble gum i couldn't find it's a skip to um couldn't really find out anything at all about the band new world so just skipping it maybe that's what russia's new world man is about <laughs> it could be it could be but <laughs> 15 for you is Paul Simon with me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Matt, give me three dings real quick, like boxing style. Ding, ding, ding. The king and still champion of cultural appropriation is Paul Simon. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Raise his arms high because this is hot <laughs> off the heels of the very Caribbean sounding mother and child reunion, which... I suppose if you want to, you can throw it into the reggae revival, I guess. Um, here we get the Latin sounding, me and Julio down by the schoolyard, including the very Latin first name of Julio. And, I, you know, we've, we've kind of dinged Simon on some past podcasts for his um, proclivity in terms of, you know, glomming on to the music of other cultures and to be fair to Simon, I don't know whether to credit him for being eclectic or criticizing him for kind of dabbling in whatever might be the flavor of the day. I don't know that all of these sounds were flavor of the day necessarily. Maybe he helped make them be flavors of the day, to be fair. But um, 
I don't know. It's like he crossed the line. It's like he can never stop doing it. You know, it's like, um, I'm not going to sing in my own voice. I'm going to go grab and sing, you know, in a Caribbean voice or African voice or in this case, South American type of uh, music. So I don't know. I don't know what, where I, I, I guess I fall on the side of he was overdoing it. But um, so, I mean, really, if you think about it, how many of his solo songs are just sung purely as Paul Simon, like in a straight up, maybe some of his late 70s stuff? Yeah, I mean, you could call me Al would probably fall in that category, I think. Yeah, but that still has Lady Smith's back Black Mombazo on it. Like doing that's that's true. That's true. Vocals. I mean, even like like um Slip Sliding Away, which I like that song a lot, you know, he's appropriating country music at that point because he's got the Oak Ridge voice singing background on it. I mean he I guess Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover is a pure Paul Simon song. Uh, probably, I guess the still crazy after all these years period might be the purest solo Paul Simon, you know, mm-hmm. never really listened to one trick pony or anything, but so anyway, he liked delving into other cultures, which I, I, I mean, I guess there's nothing wrong with that, but it just seems, it seemed to be like it was a commercial ploy to some degree. Like, Hey, it's like Paul Simon's new eclectic phase. So I don't know, maybe I'm being unfair, but um the interpretation of this song itself has long been debated um, because it's basically about a couple kids in a schoolyard who get caught and doing something wrong and they get in trouble and then they get freed by a judge. But, you know, the interpretations of this song are so boring. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay, I don't care. So um, it's not, I, I'm, I'm being pretty harsh. It's not really that bad of a song, but it just, it seems like we've had a lot of podcasts where we're talking about, Hey, Paul Simon's doing, uh, Caribbean or Paul Simon's doing like uh, Cecilia where he's also delving into South American kind of yeah, percussion. Yeah. It's like, it's like dude. So <laughs> anyway, number 14 for you, Matt is a wider shade of pale by purple harem. And this is a skip. It's a reissue of the 1967 song. So um, the second out of the three that I have on my side of the list. So just skipping it. I can't oh. skip one of them. So, although this is more late, yeah, this is different though. This isn't fifties revival. This is. Well, I wonder why they re-released this song. I mean, I, I wonder if there was a purpose for that because. Yeah, I, I couldn't figure that out. I mean, I assumed that there would be like a greatest hits album, and they just kind of punted well, it off as a single. But that wasn't the case. I mean, they just re-released it argent so. argent was basically the successor to procol harem and I, but they were it's not like they broke up they were still around at that point i think so um i don't know actually argent was the successor of the zombies i thought they also had a couple dudes from procol harem too though no not that i not that i know of anyway fine be that way <laughs> but um Number 13 for you is Red Answer by Marmalade. Well, this, like JoJo Gunn earlier, is also sort of baseline early 70s rock, but it's a lot better than Run, Run, Run. It has, unlike um, uh, Reflections, their their earlier song, this this has, this is, it's kind of like Mungo Jerry, too, in the respect that this isn't what I expected to hear. This is has good crunchy guitars in it. It's not quite glam but it's like proto glam. It's moving in that direction. And basically what it is, is it's power pop um, in kind of the earliest sense of the term and a pretty cool song. 
actually by marmalade and yeah yeah i I like this one yeah it was good and um you know nothing fancy about it nothing terribly interesting about it other than it was just a good tune that they laid down so um, so marmalade i was able to you know put down a couple good songs in the early 70s right yeah yeah so yeah reflections of our reflections of my life which was on a previous episode right yeah it's a good song yep Moving on for you, Matt, number 12 is Lady Eleanor by Lindisfarne. See, these guys were a folk rock group from Newcastle. They took their name from the island of Lindisfarne, which is about 60 miles up the coast from Newcastle. And it's kind of an important early Christian site. There was an abbey there. and Is that where um, they burned the Wicker Man? No, no, no. That, that, was, that was somewhere else in Scotland, actually. Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> but it, it was one of the first places in the British Isles that was invaded by the Vikings. And there's also a Tudor era castle there. Um, a lot of British folk rock groups um, tried to evoke the Middle Ages. So that's clearly what they're going for when they pick their name. Um, but this song is actually inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. Um, actually, it was inspired by a nightmare that their lead singer had after he read Edgar Allan Poe. Um, The song tells about how he was woken up by Roderick Usher from Poe's Fall the House of Usher and a mysterious woman named Lady Eleanor. And Lady Eleanor tries to seduce him and drag him into the afterlife. Um, Clearly she's a, a ghost, but she might be the angel of death. And he refuses her advances and um, tells her that he's happy where he is. Um, doesn't sound like anything on my side of the chart. It's almost half soft rock, half prog. And um, it's also kind of an older song. It was originally um, released as a single in 71, but it didn't chart. But they re-released it after their song... Um, Meet Me on the Corner became a hit in the UK and um, actually charted on the lower end of the US Hot 100, um, made it to 82 there, but um, number three in the UK, so a little bit better in the UK, but decent song. I I, I liked it. So. I, I think you have a keener ear for British folk than I do. I've, I've never, other than some stuff by Fairport Convention, which is pretty good, I've just never been able to get into that sound like all the led zeppelin songs where they kind of dabbled in that most of them are not among my favorites um because obviously it's not a part of our own you know cultural experience i guess to me like the way you describe that it sounds like goth before goth was invented it's like you're combining two like english folk like that pining for you know like the the middle ages and then mm-hmm. your alan poe that sounds like that sounds like goth I know it's not. Oh, the the Poe part is the a sensibility. Bit. I mean, it's a little too soft rock sounding. I to guess. Be I, well, I'm not necessarily talking about the sound. I'm just talking about the sensibility of English folk. I mean, it's like, um, you know, and I'm probably dipping into the Lord of the Rings, you know, the Hobbit and all that, which you know wasn't directly English folk, but it it borrows from that, and it just I, I don't know. It always seemed like the people who were. I guess it's more the people who were into it 
were like so heavy duty into it, like goth people are heavy duty into goth music, I guess always drew a parallel to that, I guess. Hmm. See, maybe because I, I, maybe, I mean, <laughs> to me, it's more like Renaissance fair type people. Well, yeah, but I, I draw a parallel to Renaissance, which, which is a subculture, yeah. too, I guess. I mean, I, I, I find those subcultures to be, you know, like I'm not, I'm not criticizing them but i just they're they strike me as like very specific and very strange yeah yeah i guess so i don't know <laughs> but um number 11 for you is vincent by don mcclain good lord this is a hard fucking skip big time god i hate this song <laughs> it's about vincent van gogh but it's i just i just don't care for don mcclain that much generally and this song it's just like it's like trying to i guess the point of the song is is you know it's very soft and kind of hey why don't you identify with all the shit that vincent went through when he was putting together all these works of art and it's like frankly i don't give a fuck so um i i i, I ugh, the song just it's blood curdling it's like what john belushi would have smashed a guitar to and uh in uh um God, what the hell's the name of the Animal House? Animal House, Jesus. So, yeah. <laughs> but that just teases us for the great, well, the second greatest song in this chart, but the greatest soccer song of all time. I'm not even going to announce it. I'm just going to do this. Yeah, baby. Number 10 is, well, technically it's Leeds, Leeds, Leeds by Leeds United FC, but it's really this. Give the boys a hand. Yes. <laughs> I can sing that song all the way through. I'm not going to, but Matt, it's your song this week though. So I'm curious to know. I- I'm actually curious to see what you say about it. Okay. And it's actually an A and B side here. Right. Um, the A side was called Leeds United, which is actually, we play all the way for Leeds United. And the B side is marching on together. And it was released in anticipation of Leeds winning the FA Cup in 1972. Which they did. Yes. But we should explain that I'm a huge Leeds United fan, so we'll leave that there. Yeah. And they they did win the FA Cup. They beat Arsenal. Um, Alan Clark, not to be confused with the um, Holly's lead singer, scored the only goal for them. Yep. (laughs) But... But they're also in contention for the league title that year. And the cup and the league title would have given them the double, which is somewhat rare. But um, definitely, this but, song, well, it was rare back then. It hasn't, it's less rare now, but. Right. Yeah. But both of these songs were written by Les Reed and Jeff Stevens. Um, Reed wrote It's Not Unusual and Delilah for Tom Jones. And Jeff Stevens was the brain behind um, the new vaudeville band and their hit uh, Winchester Cathedral. Yeah, nice. I didn't know that. Um, he, he also wrote The Crying Game. And before this, they teamed up for There's a Kind of Hush, which um, became a hit for Hermits, Hermits, and later on The Carpenters. And the song... Um, we play all the way for Leeds United is based off of their song for Mickey Anthony called Sally Sunshine, 
And instead of um, in that song, instead of we play all the way for Leeds United, it was you smile all the while, Sally Sunshine. So, but in the song, uh, we play, play all the way. Um, the starting lineup is called out by their nicknames. Um, there's Billy the Tiger Brenner, um, Big Jack Charlton, um, Eddie the Last Waltz Gray. <laughs> um, but two of the two of the players that are mentioned in the song, um, Terry Topcat Cooper and Gary the Viking Sprake, did not play in the FA Cup final. Um, Cooper ended up breaking his leg in a match against Stoke City in the last month of the season, and Sprake was benched in favor of David Harvey. Yeah, who was better. But, yeah. But they ended up missing out on the double that year. Um, they could have won the championship in their last match by either beating or tying Wolverhampton. Um, but they ended up losing two to one, um, which ended up handing the title to Darby County, who was managed by um, Brian Clough, who later went on to have a short and very controversial stint as Leeds manager in 74. And the stint was the basis of the book and the movie, The Damned United, which is where I first heard these two songs. Right. But um, but that last loss is also controversial. I'm not going to go into it that much because um, don't be there pissing. has been like libel suits. Don't be pissing on Don Revy's grave now. Come on now. Billy, Billy Bremner's grave too. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's... There, there um, were match fixing allegations on that last match. They they played Wolves only two days after the FA Cup because the FA didn't like Leeds United, um, and they refused to reschedule it. And so Leeds was pretty tired after winning the FA Cup, and they and the game was at Wolves. And the rumor was is that Don Revy, Leeds' manager, bribed Wolves to basically take a fall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and. Billy Bremner, it was alleged that he was the source for it. He Revy died, I think, before um, that came to a head again. That came that went to the courts twice, and Bremner sued and won uh, a libel suit on that. So, yeah, yeah, but yeah, part of the controversy, Leeds was kind of the bad boys of English football back then. Um, They were very successful in their early days, they were rough. Uh, by this point, they were pretty much a fin- they were more of a finesse team, but um, not terribly well liked by the British public. Um, so they were uh, they were kind of reviled in a lot of ways. So, but I, I'm I'm assuming that everybody in Leeds just went out and bought this single because I mean it did this was its peak on the chart, but it did make it in the top ten. Yeah, so. I mean, well, and this song is since become you know not only iconic for Leeds fans I mean Leeds fans ident- marching on together has become the b-side of this even then was the one that people latched onto and the one that they sing yeah at matches we love you Leeds 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 yeah which um I mean it doesn't mention the players from that era so I mean obviously right. it's kind it's, of endured it's sung before every match you'll hear it if you watch a Leeds match on TV and you know this song you'll hear it multiple times during a match sung by lead supporters and even lead supporters in the hashtag era identified themselves as MOT 
for marching on together. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do it. Um, and it's and a great the, song. The video for um, We Play All The Way, um, most of the comments are, let's get back to the prem, M-O-T. <laughs> it's right. Probably me commenting <laughs> on them. Uh, which leads yeah. on the verge of doing their first place in the table if they'd only start playing again. But um, right. the uh, it's 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 also considered one of the most iconic. Just Leeds is one of the few teams in England that has an original song as their as their adopted song. Now Liverpool is famous for um, "You'll Never Walk Alone," which is a which was a Rodgers and Hammerstein song that was made popular by. Um, um shit Fairland, right by no it was um who the hell did ferry across the oh, jerry and the pacemakers oh okay yeah they did it and then they kind of adopted it when they became good in the mid 60s and that's the, you know of all the football songs that's probably the one that's most famously identified with a team um but leads the song is the only one that's original and they did a they did a countdown recently i heard it somehow and um this song won out as the best football song of all in England. It, it's it's a pretty catchy song. Well, yeah, and and it the only time it's ever been adopted in America is the Minnesota Twins somehow used it a couple of years ago. Um, it would have been about ten years ago they adopted it, and Leeds <laughs> fans found out about this and they just absolutely leveled the Minnesota Twins over this, like they were. You know, by then, this was the early days of social media, and they were like, how dare you culturally appropriate marching on together for, you know, American baseball. So I've never, I heard it once, and it's, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, but of course, most Twins fans were like, what the hell are you, to, who the hell is Leeds United, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I can sing this song by heart. I know it. Most Leeds fans do. It's, it's amazing that it was a top 10 song. There were, although there were a lot of, it be, kind of became part of a tradition if it wasn't already that when teams were making an FA cup run, this was particularly true in the seventies and eighties, they would get together and record a song. Like they were ahead of way ahead of Super Bowl shuffle in that sense. Liverpool. Oh yeah. Had a big hit in the late seventies when they were making a run at the triple, I think in like 76 or 77. It's actually mm-hmm. not a bad song at all. It's And a lot of these songs were recorded by the players. I, I do think there are players who sing on these songs, but it's not primarily them singing. Um, Supposedly this one is. Yeah, they they are singing on it, but the Liverpool song in the late 70s, is, it sounded like the Bay City Rollers. It actually isn't bad at all, but um, like we're, I think it's called We're Gonna Do It or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're not talking about artistic, you know, brilliance here, but emotional right. brilliance, it doesn't get any bigger than this. And I'm really it looks like they're going to play in England and I've been waiting. Leeds was relegated due to financial problems in 2004 and it's been a long 16 years waiting. And seriously, this will be, even though I've never even been to Leeds, never been to England at all. um, When Leeds goes up, it'll be bittersweet because of the way they do it because of the, you know, the social isolation and no fans. But to me as a sports fan, that's as big a deal to me as, uh, one of our own Wisconsin teams winning a championship. That'll be big. Because hmm. it's just so different in England to go through, to be an English soccer fan and to lose your status. That's not something we have here. And to ride through that and then regain it is, it's hard to explain, you know, that experience as a sports fan because we don't have that here. So 
Um, right. So, but it's been a torturous wait, waiting to see if they actually, because they could void the season. And if they did that, they'd be stuck in the second tier. And uh, that would right. be a nightmare. It'd be an awful way to stay down. So, definitely yeah so yeah i'm hoping and praying they're supposedly going to start playing in a couple weeks so we'll see yeah but i've been wasting a lot of time uh yammering on about this when i got another song to yammer about you do um your favorite song number nine um rolling stones with tumbling dice i can't believe that marching on together and tumbling dice are next to each other on a chart that's so fucking awesome i love that but (laughs) and you're right this is my favorite song of all time and um i kind of decided on that at a pretty early age i I always liked the rolling stones tumbling dice was really their only chart hit off of exile on main street which is considered by many to be their best album and one of the best albums ever recorded um and and it is um but Tumbling Dice isn't up there with like Brown Sugar or Honky Tonk Women or Jumping Jack Flash or anything like or, or Satisfaction in terms of kind of mass popularity and airplay. It didn't get up to number one on either side of the Atlantic, um, you know, so it was sort of like it was kind of respected, but it wasn't, you know, quite as iconic as some of those songs are, which is probably because it's not quite as accessible as those songs. But that's one of the reasons I like it, I think. Um, first of all, the when I first started hearing this song a lot, I think what grabbed me about it is is that it feel is the and what grabs a lot of people is the groove of the song. I mean, it's um, you know it feels like it was recorded live somewhere in a bar, like in a backwoods bar somewhere. There's back you know the background singers um, who were basically the back the chosen background singers for almost every rock band in the '70s, uh, Clyde e. King and all that. Um, it sounds like they went back in some country barn recorded this on a whim. You know, it just feels live. Um, it's the opposite of live. They actually did probably more takes of this song than they did any, certainly more than any other in Exile on Main Street. Um, but it has that weird groove to it that's just grabs you and, and doesn't let go of you. And, and the structure of the song is weird. It doesn't have the same amount of verses in each uh, or same amount of lines in each verse. Um, the lyrics are obscure, like most Rolling Stones songs are, but they're cool. Like, I'll, I'll never forget hearing uh, I'm all sixes and sevens and nines for the first time. I was like, man, I don't know what that means, but that sounds really cool. You know, and I was like in my teens. And um, so it has a lot going for it. And musically, what I what I think I finally decided I liked about it is that it pretty much has every influence of rock and roll boiled down to its s do it to its essence i mean there's a gospel feel to it there's a country feel to it there's a straight up rock and roll feel to it um mick jagger's lyrics are slurred and all that but he sings it well um so i think it encompasses everything that's cool about rock and roll and um that's what i always liked about it and um you know it has a great coda to it it's it's a perfect song i mean it's in my opinion it's pretty good yeah yeah i mean and it fits right if you've ever heard exxon main street it fits right in with the rest of that album i mean it just it it probably does have a that and maybe all down the line and probably rocks off i'll have a little bit of punch to them but certainly it probably does jump out as the most obvious single maybe happy too by the one sung by keith richards but I don't know. It's just always been my favorite. Every time I hear it, it lifts me up. And um, I just think it's a great song. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. I, I mean, I actually prefer Rocks Off off of this album, but I mean, it is a great song, though. Well, I mean, there's, a, a, you know, it's probably my favorite album of all time. So, I mean, there's any number of songs you can pick off of Exile Main Street that are just, you know, would blow away most songs on any other album. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, and, and it's a very American, you know, they were making a conscious effort to have an American sound at that point. You know, they're very influenced by Graham Parsons and his kind of American version of country, the American sound and all that. So this is very much of that. But like I said, I mean, this, it sounds like it was recorded live almost, but they probably did like a hundred takes of this song. And hmm. what bugs me about it is, and it was pieced together. Most of Exile Main Street was recorded in the basement of their tax uh, exile chateau in France. This song was not, it was recorded in LA. Um, they borrowed, I think they're, uh, Mick Jagger said he was inspired. He visited James Cleveland's choir there. Hmm. And that's part of what inspired the way the sound of the song. But Mick Jagger to this day says he hates the sound of this song, which makes me distrust Mick Jagger. <laughs> so I, he thinks it should be cleaner sounding, faster tempo, and that would totally fuck up, you know, the whole reason that song is good. So, right. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, like I said, not their probably best remembered hit, but probably their best hit and my favorite song ever. So, mm-hmm. yep. I know your favorite song ever is our next one <laughs> at the club Saturday night at the movies by the drifters. And I, I can't figure out for the life of me why these songs were re-released in the UK in 1972. Um, they were both released in the mid sixties, kind of at the tail end of the drifters original run. And um, they were both pretty minor hits in the U S um, at the club made it to 43 Saturday night movies made it to 18 and they're both just variations of under the boardwalk. Um, just substitute boardwalk with the club or drive in. And that's basically it. And like most of their songs, um, both of these songs came out of the Brill building um, at the club was written by Gary Goffin and Saturday night was written by man and wild um the drifters by this point by the point that they recorded this song they had no original members and that is because um their founder Clyde McFadden when he left the band he sold the name to their manager George Treadwell and he basically um just used it as a brand whenever um any singer wanted too much money he would boot them out of the band and get somebody else. So um, they had about 60 different members in their original run. And um, they should get them all together and do a concert. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, most of them, I assuming are dead now, but, but yeah, yeah, they could have done that. <laughs> it's, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, not really too much to say about it. It's, Made it to number three in the UK charts for some reason, though. Well, the 50s revival thing was going on here, too. Chuck Berry had My Dingling was a big hit in 72. And, and um, 
I don't know. American Graffiti came out a little bit after that, I think, but that certainly fueled it here. Yeah, that was like 74, 73 or 74. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, number seven for you is Johnny Cash and the Evangel Temple Choir with a thing called Love. Well, I was driving myself crazy trying to figure out who the Evangel Temple Choir was because... Every time I looked this song up, it would bring up a bunch of Johnny Cash shit and just never really explained who the Evangel Temple Choir were. I don't know if they're from a Nashville church choir or what, but um, but this song is kind of it's I suppose I could call it baseline Johnny Cash, um, kind of schmaltzy Johnny Cash. And this song would be really cheesy in the vein of um, song song blue or anything like that. But Johnny Cash kind of saves it because. He sells it well. Uh, it has quite a few bad country music tropes in it. You know, the strings, uh, the the choir itself sings in that kind of, um, you know, white gospel type background singing, which is not a compliment. Um, so it trades in some of those tropes, but then Cash sings it well. He sings the, the chorus as well, and it kind of saves it. Mm-hmm. So, um Anyone else sings this song and it's super schmaltz, but it's Johnny Cash, so it's a little bit better. Why this was a big hit in England, I'll never right. know. Because, uh, you know, they did have their share of country hits, but it was weird what country hits kind of hit them sometimes. They tended to be more on the schmaltzy side over there for some reason. So, but not the most memorable Johnny Cash song, but not terrible. Right. So, Number six for you, Matt, is Oh Babe, What Would You Say by Hurricane Smith. Norman Hurricane Smith started out as a staff producer at EMI. And in that capacity, he ended up engineering every Beatles recording up to and including Rubber Soul. And he also later went on to produce the first four Pink Floyd albums and the very first rock opera, um, The Pretty Things SF Sorrow. But this is about as far as you can get from Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Um, It's music hall vaudeville type song. Um, Just really annoying. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of 30s crap, basically. Paul McCartney granny Pretty much. Um, Actually, could sort of imagine Ringo singing this, actually, and... Um, Hurricane Smith had about as good of a voice as Ringo, but um, ended up being a huge hit on both sides of the Atlantic. It was actually slightly more popular here. Um, Peaked at number four in the UK, but went to three on Billboard and number one on Cashbox in the US. But um, we should do it. We should. We should. But um, kind of going with the football theme of this, um, Norman Smith also wrote theme from an unmade silent movie, which is used as entrance music for Aston Villa. Yeah. <laughs> what a bunch of wankers. Yeah. I don't like Aston Villa. But, but yeah, the song is pretty terrible. So Yes, it is. It's very <laughs> terrible. But number five for you, which isn't terrible, is Elton John with Rocket Man. Oh, it's terrible. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the early 70s were very much in the golden age of using astronauts as metaphors for loneliness. And 
both this and Space Oddity, oddly enough, were produced by the same guy, Gus Dudgeon. Um, it's a great song. Obviously, everybody knows it. And it's become even more popular in the last year or two with the movie Rocket Man. Uh, but it was not like it wasn't popular before that. But um, it's weird how Elton John's catalog from that time seems to resonate differently with different generations. Like probably for people your age when you're in college, Tiny Dancer became big because it was in all right. those famous. Yeah. And Rocket Man is big because of the movie. I mean, it was big before that, but, you know, it was helped become bigger by the movie Rocket Man. And, you know, like I said, it's basically Elton John using the metaphor of an astronaut going into space as loneliness is the way I read it. I don't think it's that subtle, but um, the movie Rocket Man, I watched it and it just didn't do it for me. I, I, just, I still haven't it, seen that. Yeah, it's it's it, unlike. Um, bohemian rhapsody you know going in that it's going to be um you know stylized because it's basically sort of mm-hmm. a musical but i don't know it just didn't do it right. for me it didn't have um um it didn't have uh <laughs> solar prestige <laughs> and gammon with it. yeah uh, anyway um Number four, Come What May for You, Matt, by Vicky Leon. Eurovision winner. Nice. You got one. This the song won the title for Luxembourg. It it was Ooh. Luxembourg's third Eurovision win. Um they previously won yep. what? One one percent of me is proud of <laughs> Yeah, as 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 whatever one percent of me is also proud of this. A percentage of Luxembourg and we are very <laughs> right. small. But like their like their previous winners, it was written in French. Um the original title was Après Toi, which means after you, not come what may. And like all of their previous winners, um the song was completely written and performed by non-Luxembourgers. Um Vicky Leandros is Greek and she was living in Germany at the time. Um, the song was written by her father, Leo, and um, the German songwriter, Klaus Monroe. And Vicky had represented Luxembourg in Eurovision in 1967 with a song called um, L'Amore Bleu, which became a big international hit known as in our country as Love is Blue. Um, Paul Muriot did the version here. And it's kind of a basic ballad. It's something you'd imagine would win at Eurovision. Um, The French version of the song is actually better. Um, For the record, she beat out um, the New Seekers, Beg, Steal, and Borrow, which was actually kind of lower on this chart. And this is a hundred times better than that song. Um, But Vicky kind of sounds like somebody I can't really put my finger on who it is, though. Um, my guess would be Helen Reddy, but I don't think it's her either. But she sounds like somebody. <laughs> it's... Okay. I I haven't been able to get past the fact that they culturally appropriated Luxembourg. And 1% of me is really pissed off Right, that. yeah. Well, I mean, Luxembourgers, like, it, for Eurovision, is like one of those Eastern European countries that, like, recruits sprinters from like jamaica or like 
distance runners from Kenya for the Olympics. I mean, that's basically what they're doing here. Damn it. They should have just had us <laughs> write a song. Right. So one of these days, Luxembourg will take over <laughs> yeah. the world. But also going with the football theme on this show, um, Leo Leandros, the co-writer of the song, was the writer and the original singer of the hymn of Panathinaikos. The anthem for the Greek football team, Panathinaikos. So has that going for it. But um, That was a golden age of Panathinaikos. I think they were in the European Cup final in 1971. I, I didn't look it up, but that I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, <laughs> just roll with it. But that, um, you know. number two hit in the UK, um, number one in five different countries. So, but um, number three, there's no like no accounting yeah, for taste. Yeah. <laughs> um, number three for you is. Pipes and drums and the military band of the Scott of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guard with Amazing Grace. Yeah, that might be the longest band name we've had. Okay, be truthful with me. When you hear a bagpipe version of Amazing Grace, what's the first thing you think of? I'm, I'm thinking like a cop funeral. <laughs> no, come on. Fail. It was the funeral for oh, Spock. Oh, okay, Rath okay, yeah, that's right. Scotty plays it, yeah. Yeah, and while he, I believe James Doohan actually played that in the movie, it sounds almost identical to this version of by the uh, Royal Scots Dragoon Guard, which it's, it has some, a little bit of accoutrements to it. It has like some, I guess some strings or some effects to the, to the bagpipes, but they're bagpipes. It's bagpipe Amazing Grace, which in its right context can be moving like it is at the end of The Wrath of Khan. I'll never forget my son, Niall, watching uh, Wrath of Khan when he was like six years old. And that scene came on and huh. he started bawling. He couldn't handle it. Like, he, you know, he just, he thought that was really emotional. But um, Amazing Grace, of course, is a timeless song and, you know, an old standard and all that. And I've always thought context matters with this song, though. Like, sometimes I think it's a little bit overdone. Like, at a funeral, and you hear Amazing Grace, it's very powerful, obviously, mm-hmm. because it's timeless and because of the context of it being a funeral. But I don't know. When I hear it in a commercial and all that stuff, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't really belong. Right. So um, I'm not sure what was going on in in England at the time that would have made this a hit, although it is a very good version if you're into bagpipe versions of Amazing Grace, but um, you know, but I still come back to the fact that they played this and they shot Spock out of a spaceship onto uh, uh, onto, onto <laughs> yeah, the Genesis yeah. planet, and it was amazing because he he, yeah, he animated. Our dad dragged us to that movie like three times too. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. I. I... I only recall seeing. I think you're mixing up all the Star Trek. This movies, this was the one that like he claimed one. that he didn't see, and we saw like three times. <laughs> okay, well, HBO's many showings of it more than made up for that. He dragged me to the original Star Trek movie, um, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, when it came out in '79. I mean, I was only like eight years old, and I was sick, 
the night he took he took me to the old river so when the riverside theater in milwaukee <laughs> was still a movie theater and he's like you're coming because you're into star wars and you know it, you could tell he was maybe trying a little bit too hard to bring you know he's a big trekkie and maybe trying a little too hard to push yeah into the next generation and Star Trek, the motion picture is not bad, actually, um, but it's slow and it's definitely not for somebody who's eight, an eight year old attention span. And I de- and I wasn't feeling well. And I, I remember falling asleep. Yeah. Yeah. In that movie. So it's actually not that bad, though. But Wrath of Khan is the best. It, it is. Yeah. Of all, yeah. By far. Easily. So anyway, number two for you, Matt, is could it be forever slash cherish? 1972 Cassidy. was the height of David Cassidy mania in the UK, so it's not really a surprise that he's turning up here near the top of the charts. Um, both of these songs are, are off of what was technically his debut solo album. Um, the Partridge family had put out five albums before this, which were essentially David Cassidy solo albums, but this was the first under his name. Um could It Be Forever was written by Wes Farrell, who did all the music for the Partridge family. And um, Wes Farrell's funniest non-Partridge family credit is that he wrote the theme song to Gamera. So. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I didn't even know it had a theme it was, song. It was on the MST3K. Was, well, their version of it anyway. It was like. Oh. Okay. Camera is really yeah, deep. Camera is full of meat. Oh, yeah. But I thought <laughs> that out for the show. But, but okay. it's a bland, <clears throat> syrupy ballad. Um, has the Partridge family sound to it. So they weren't really branching out on that one. And Cherish is a cover of the Association's hit. Um, but it's somehow wimpier than the original. <laughs> yeah but and i like the original version of that but yeah I, it's definitely I, wimpy that's out of the big association singles that's probably my least favorite but but this was the beginning of the end for cassidy in the states um cherish did make it to number nine but could it be forever kind of stalled at 37 um this was it's both of the songs peak and the uk and he continued to churn out like top five hits for a few years after this. Uh-huh. I, I just had a thought. Do you think David Cassidy and the Partridge Jam- Ban- Partridge family generally could have maintained their popularity if Ruben Kincaid had supplied them with drugs <laughs> to make them edgier? I don't know about that. Maybe. I I, I don't know. I maybe. He should have flipped David Cassidy some uh, um, some smack, and maybe they would have taken a little bit, you know, more of a relevant yeah. turn. Well, he could have got Shirley Jones yeah. in the disco. Um, you know, Danny Bonaducci could have started playing the violin, you know, prog style <laughs> for no good reason. Right? Who knows? I think Ruben, I don't think Ruben was ambitious. Yeah, yeah he wasn't. He wasn't. Should have tried harder. Fail. <laughs> but anyway, we're at number one here. Here we here we go. Fired up. T Rex with Metal Guru. 
All right. Well, this is probably going to raise your hackles, Matt, but because I know you're a big T-Rex fan and, and I am too, but I got to be honest, I think this is kind of substandard T-Rex. Um, and this is a big hit. You know, T-Rex was at the absolute height of their popularity, you know, in 1972. Bang a Gong had come out the year before. Electric Warrior album uh, came out in 1971 and was a sensation in England. It was Bang a Gong was a big hit in the U.S., but that was really T-Rex's only U.S. hit. Um, this came off of their next album, The Slider. And I don't know. This is just my opinion. I have a feeling you're going to disagree with it. But I don't feel like the slider is as inspired. Oh, it, it, it isn't. Is. It definitely is. I feel like I feel like he's repeating himself. And this song, while it's loved by a lot of people, um, is I don't know. It's just it just doesn't stick with me for some reason. It's he's basically going metal guru, who you know where are you or something like that. And it's just it doesn't work. It's it's. It's like too gimmicky. Oh, a lot, a like lot of that. Songs I mean, it's gimmicky. not horrible. No. Yeah, I know, but I mean, maybe the gimmick was running out of steam in my by my ears. It certainly wasn't in England. Obviously, it was number one. Um, you know, Mark Bolin's lyrics were never definitely not. Strong suit. Definitely not. I mean, they were very, very. He could be in the bad lyric hall of fame without doubt. Um, there's usually a meaning behind kind of the simplicity. He he would write cool shit. Like he would come mm-hmm. up with cool lines to songs but you know he would shoot for the moon on some of his lines and miss a lot and you know so that's something you kind of have to take with the whole t-rex experience i suppose but this song doesn't rock that that hard like a lot of Mm t-rex songs do um it's rock and roll and in a sense it's kind of rock and roll cool but it's dopey all at once and that's i suppose kind of t-rex personified um the funny thing is, is I went back and I found an interview where Bolin explained the song and he says, <laughs> this is typical kind of hippy dippy rock star type stuff. He said, quote, it's a festival of life song. I relate metal guru to all gods around. I believe in a God, but I have no religion with metal guru. It's like someone special. It must be a Godhead. I thought how God would be. He'd be all alone without a telephone. And I, I don't I don't answer the phone anymore. I have codes where people ring me up at certain times. And there is a line in the song where, you know, he doesn't have a telephone or whatever. So apparently that's what Mark Bolin was talking about. But, you know, Mark Bolin, he was a great guitar player, um, died tragically later on in the 70s. But he he was definitely very much in the hippy dippy world of rock stars. So actually, uh, I mean, very hippy dippy before he became T-Rex. He's sort of like the spiritual successor to Donovan in a sense, yeah, yeah. In, that, in that sense. Because Don, Donovan could be like that too, although Donovan was a much better writer than Mark Bolin ever was. But but Mark Bolin could play a guitar. And the thing about the slider is, though, Metal Guru is one of the songs, Buick McCain, um, a few other songs. I'm trying to remember what the other hit was off of that in England was oh, off God, of this album. Was it? Um, um, rock, rock On, maybe? I wrote it down. I don't remember, but when he played these songs live, they were really cool. I mean, he just didn't capture it on record um, as well as uh, as as he did live, because his live performances back then were mm-hmm. really, really awesome. But anyway, 
I'm more of an electric electric warrior is a great album, but it's like he kind of ran out of ideas after electric warrior. In my See, opinion. I, but, I think, I, um, I mean, I like tanks a lot too. I mean, tanks is kind of like druggier, um, sloppier version of, um, the slider. And it, it's actually grown on me a lot over yeah. the years. It's, he really couldn't figure out whether to go pop or whether to go, um, you know, whether to go rock. Children of the Revolution was the other big mm-hmm. hit off of this album. So Solid Gold, Easy Action came out in 72. Now 20th Century Boy, which was a single that came out a year yeah. later. That's a great song. But, uh, you know, he kind of lost his way. And then by the time he died, he was delving into all kinds of stuff. He was always respected mm-hmm. as a guitar player, but, um, you know, had a very kind of short shelf life as a mainstream rock artist. Electric Warrior is so cool sounding, though. That Just the guitar sound in that, the percussion is what I always grabs me about Electric Warrior because they put that reverb on the drum that's like an echo effect off of it, which is super cool. You know, basically, basically yeah, invented yeah. glam. So, you know, give them credit where credit's yep. due. But that's it for this week, Matt. What you got? Well, I almost took your week? daughter's su- suggestion and looked for a 2010 chart or 2010s chart. Holy but shit. I looked through the songs and I was just like, Bleh. so yeah. Because <laughs> they're yeah. old like me. So I'm actually going to a chart from when I was her age. Um, we're going to do the alternative okay. chart from June 1st, 1996. June 1st, 1996. Yeah. And okay. It's a little bit better than the other alternative charts that we've done, but also in some cases worse. So, but uh, that's that's what we're getting right. into next week. That's strangely enough also from my teenage <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> oh, okay. I tried. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yep, and That's it for see this you week. next week in 1996. Marching on together. We're going to see you win. But we are so proud. We shout it out loud. We love you, Leeds. Leeds. <laughs> okay. Leeds. Okay. Ah, <laughs> right. I told you to sing it. Yep. Right. See ya. Thanks for listening. <laughs>